I would encourage you to go ahead and take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we've been studying the letter that Peter wrote to several churches that bears the title now for us, 1 Peter. And we're near the end in chapter 5. I want to encourage you to go ahead and read along. I'm going to read it first before I start commenting on it, but 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so, we have here sort of a a hard turn in this letter. It's a hard turn where he talks to the elders of the church. Which is, it's a little bit humbling, perhaps awkward for me. Because he's talking to the elders of the church of which I am one. I'm a pastor. Being a pastor, I am also an elder. Elder is the leadership office of our church. And so, here I am talking to you about, well, what I do, I suppose. It's a little bit like my visual for this is the, is the Wizard of Oz. Right, the, the wizard's there behind the curtain, and no one really knows what the wizard does, and so the wizard sort of plays that up and gets, you know, lots of credit for being fierce and scary and all of these things, and then finally the little dog pulls the curtain aside and here's this old guy, right, who isn't, you know, very powerful at all. For me, that's sort of what it's like to talk to you about what an, what an elder is, what an elder does, I feel like somebody's pulling the curtain behind and here I am sort of exposed and maybe less than I might have been had you just wondered, well, what does he do all week, right? He only works one day a week after all. That's everyone's thing about pastors. They only work one day a week and nobody really knows. But here in 1 Peter 5, you find out. I think it's good for you to find out. It's good for me to be reminded, okay, what is God's responsibility that He's given me, and then it's good for all of you to say, what does God expect from us? What does God expect from those who are elders of the church? Now, I admit that, but then I also want to make sure that you're really clear about why this exhortation to elders shows up in the letter of 1 Peter. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. So I do this. So what? The so of this is the thing that I want to make sure that you see. 
Because if you, the word so throws us back to what was ahead, what was, what we just had read, where it said, don't be surprised when there is a fiery trial that comes upon you. Don't be surprised if there's trouble. And all of us, of course, are a little surprised. We all want there to be a life with no trouble. And so when trouble comes, we're all surprised. He says, don't be surprised because fiery trial is coming upon you. Now, it's because there is a fiery trial on the people of God that there are elders. Because his concern is that the church, these little bands of uh, Christians all throughout Asia, and you'll notice in, in chapter 1, verse 2, that's what he says. There's, they're in the, they're little groups of exiles in all of these little towns, and they don't, they have a minimum of organization. They just have an elder or two in each one, probably, and he wants to encourage those elders because the fiery trials are coming and the flock is going to be scattered. There's going to be there's going to be bombs blow up in the um, in the pasture, and somebody's going to watch out for the sheep. That's his that's his picture here. In fact, okay, that that that's back there. That's up above. If you look up above, there's fire trials. If you look down below, in the next few verses, you'll see that there is a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. See, all, all the lion has to do is be behind a bush over there and roar and the sheep scatter. The whole thing about a roar is that it scares the sheep and makes them easier to pick off. And so what he is doing here is he's saying the important thing for us as a church is that we hang together when the lion roars. That we are together when the pressure is on and the fiery trials heat up. And so, the way we're going to do that is we're going to have a little bit of organization. And the little bit of organization is that there will be elders, and, that, uh, and that's really all he talks about. We, we have more organization to our church because it's older, right? I mean, we have ministry leaders and we have different things, life groups. That they probably were a band of, you know, bands of 20 to 40 people, just barely bigger than the life group, and they had uh, elders. And he's encouraging those elders to watch out because there's a fiery trial on the one hand and a roaring lion on the other and the whole operation is in jeopardy. And so he encourages those elders. That's what exhortation means. I encourage the elders among you. And then Peter says, I encourage the elders uh, among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. It's interesting, he says, I encourage the elders among you, and then he doesn't. I encourage the elders among you, and then he gives his qualifications for being the guy who encourages the elders. And his qualifications are these. He is a fellow elder. He also is on guard against the roaring lion. In fact, he himself has experienced the roar of the lion when the sheep were scattered. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, they all scattered. And they 
hung the Good Shepherd on the cross. And Peter, I'm sure, has this in the back of his mind as he's writing this and concerned that the sheep would scatter again. He's been recommissioned by the Lord too to be an elder. In fact, I can't imagine that he's talking to elders and to overseers and to pastors without him also remembering what Jesus said to him. Because, yes, he was one that, that scattered and ran when Jesus was arrested. And he was one that cowered in a locked room when they couldn't find Jesus' body until the women came and said, oh, we can't, you know, the tomb is empty and he ran to see it. And it was later that he met the risen Jesus. In fact, it's one of my favorite pictures in all of the Bible. They're there around the Sea of Galilee. And Peter's gone back to fishing. He's taken several of them with him. They're out fishing. They catch nothing. And there's this guy shouts from the shore, Hey, throw your net on the other side. So they do, and they haul in this huge um, haul of fish, 153 to be exact. Fishermen know these things. And Peter recognizes it's the Lord, and he jumps overboard, and he swims to shore. And they all eat breakfast together in just a moment. And after breakfast, Jesus says, Hey, Peter, let's go for a walk. And I'm sure Jesus has in his mind Peter's three denials around the campfire, around the fire in the um, in the courtyard there when Jesus was being tried, and he said, "Peter, do you love me?" Peter said, "Of course. Feed my sheep." Peter, do you love me? Of course. Shepherd my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And he said, "Peter was grieved that the Lord asked him a third time." And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And I'm sure that that's in the back of Peter's mind. The fact that he was recommissioned as an elder. Recommissioned as a servant of Jesus. By Jesus Himself. And so he says, yes, I'm a fellow elder. And I'm a witness of the suffering of Christ. He had just, I mean, this is all in the context of suffering. There's fiery trial that is coming upon the church. And he said, it is you are a partaker in the sufferings of Christ. The end of chapter 4. And he said, I saw those sufferings. I know the suffering of Jesus. And I want to encourage you, elders, to, in view of the suffering of Jesus, to shepherd the flock. And then he says, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I love this because he is so certain He is so certain of the end of the story that he's able to say, I am now a partaker in glory that is yet to come. In other words, he is so certain of the living hope that we have been born again into, chapter 1, verse 3. We have born again into a living hope that right now today he considers himself a partaker in that hope. A partaker in the glory. He is enjoying currently now the confidence that the certainty of glory brings in the future. And it is because of that he can say, as your fellow elder, I want to encourage the elders 
Because this work, in view of the roaring lion, this work, in view of the fiery trial, this work is important work. And the work is this. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. It literally is the, the verb for pastor the flock of God. Make sure that they, like the Good Shepherd that uh, Ben read about earlier, that they are led to um, green pastures and quiet water, that they're protected and that they're healthy. Shepherd the flock of God among you. I'm going to say it now, I'm going to point it out again later. It is very important to recognize that you are to shepherd the flock that belongs to God. The flock does not belong to the pastor. The flock does not belong to the leader or to all the elders combined. The flock belongs only to God. And so, as someone to whom that responsibility is delegated, I want you to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And here's how you're to do it. You're to exercise oversight. Uh, to exercise oversight. So here he's got all three words. He's got overseer, he's got pastor, and he's got uh, elder all in the same um, couple verses to describe the work that these church leaders are to do. They're to shepherd by exercising oversight. In other words, they're to care for the whole group. They're to look out over the whole situation. So, I mentioned earlier that there's a roaring lion in the bushes, right? I don't know how many of you, I mean, if you're my age, you used to watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. If you're younger than me, maybe you saw Planet Earth or you saw some other, um, some other version of a National Geographic film where the wolves or the, or the lions are ready to uh, take some kind of animal. And as soon as this happens, right, it's, it's always the cutest one. It's always this little, little baby who somehow gets separated. And, and as, as this happens, the narrator always points out, oh, there's that one. Look at that one's the one. And you start to get really nervous because it's also the cutest one. And then the, you know, the music starts to play and it gets frightening. And there's this big drama about whether that little one is going to get separated from the herd and get eaten. And... The, that's, I think, the picture here. The, the elders are to, sh- to shepherd exercising oversight, looking to, to take care of the most vulnerable ones on the edge who might be prey if they're not paying attention. So they look out for those sorts of things. And so there is a... There is a corporate aspect to shepherding. There's, of course, there's the, the interpersonal or personal aspect of it where, yes, one individual has needs and they're to be cared for as well, but there's, there's both. There's shepherding and there's oversight, um, one-on-one and corporately. And you're to do this, he says, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. 
And so there, there are two sides of these things. There is the not part and there is the positive part. There's the negative and the positive. Not under compulsion. Not having your arm twisted. Not with some sort of false modesty or deference. I don't know if you've ever been part of uh, the meetings where somebody's maybe going to be nominated to be an elder. Oh, shucks. They'll say, oh, no, not me. I, not me. I'm not up for it. Okay, well, the no, not me is pretty much an indication not to do it. Because he says, not under compulsion. Don't make someone talk you into it. Not out of obligation, but willingly. From your heart is another translation. Or from the essence of your being. Be the kind of person who is looking out for other people. When you are the kind of person who looks out for other people, that's the way you're to exercise oversight. Then not for shameful gain. Shameful gain is... It's interesting. This word for shameful gain is only used three times in the whole Bible. It's used in Titus chapter 1 when he's talking about elders. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when he's talking about elders. And it's used here. So apparently there is a serious concern for church leaders not to be motivated by money. Not to be... um, to be co-opted by uh, a concern for financial gain. And so, he's, it is a freedom from the motivation of money that enables you to be free to shepherd the flock. And so, just uh, as part of the way that we're... Uh, wanting to raise up other church leaders, other people who are no longer bound by money and no longer stuck there but are free to care for other people. The, what we're going to do in the, uh, in the next few weeks when we're finished with First Peter is that we're going to have a, a short series on um, financial stewardship and uh, answering before God for what He's given to us. And so, uh, in hopes that all of us will not be motivated by shameful gain but be free to look out for the concerns of other people. So he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So there is this internal motivation that causes you to be the kind of person to look out for the flock. And so may God continue to raise up elders like this. So he's got the, the, the positives and the negatives, and then he, he does it again. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So there is this, this third piece where he says, not domineering. There is authority in the office of elder. It is a delegated authority from the chief shepherd, but it ought not to be authoritarian. There isn't a place for domineering or for command and control. There is instead a humble approach to serve and to love. And apparently, (laughs) apparently he's seen this happen. He's probably the only one to ever see it happen, I imagine. Actually, sadly, this happens all of the time. But 
there were all these little churches that he wrote to and uh, tells us in, in chapter 1, verse 2. And I imagine there was some in one little church who had an issue with money and there were some in another church who couldn't get anybody to serve as another because none of them were willing. And I imagine there's this other little church where somebody was just playing the boss instead of playing the servant. And so, he says, not domineering. Which is a, it's just an indication to you that when you face a domineering church leader, that's not who you're supposed to submit to. It says in verse 5 to submit. But that's not what he's after here. He's saying... Elders need to be people who are easy to submit to because they love and serve rather than those who uh, cause you uh, all kinds of pain because they're difficult and abusive. They're not to, to be domineering, but to be examples. They're to be examples to the flock. So this, this is the most, for, for me personally, this is the most frightening of all of the uh, verses. This is more frightening than the fiery trial, if you ask me more frightening than the roaring lion because what he's doing is he's telling elders that it's, it's God's will that you have uh, people watching you. And you are to live with people watching you in a way that if they do what you do, it will be good for them. And so certainly I think he has to do with, it has to do with money. So handle your money in a way that if other people handle their money the way you do, it'll be good for them. Live in your family in a way that if other people's families are like your family, it will be good for them. But then there's all the other exhortations throughout the book of 1 Peter 2. Honor everyone. Okay? I ask myself, what if other people honor everyone like I honor everyone? Would there be any honor? Would there be enough honor? Would it work? Love the brotherhood. Do, do people love the brotherhood like I love the brotherhood? Or show hospitality? See, all of these, these are the things that, are, that an elder is to be an example of. Which is frightening. But even in, even in Hebrews it says uh, to... Um, submit to your leaders so that they might lead with joy and not with sorrow because they will give account. And that's what they give account for. They give account for how do they live. See, it's very easy to think, well, the, the job of a preacher is it's all about truth. It's all about teaching or doctrine or speaking or preaching or whatever. But what he's saying here is it is about life. It's really about life. And it is the life of the church that's at stake with the life of the leader. And so, live in such a way that people can do what you do and it will be good for them. So be an example to the flock. And with this pressure, he says, comes a reward. When the chief Shepherd appears. You'll receive an unfading crown of glory. So Peter himself was aware that there was glory coming. He was a 
already a partaker of the glory that's still to come. And now he says, so will the elders that I'm encouraging be partakers of the glory that's to come. But again, I want to make sure that you don't miss how this is organized here. Not domineering over those in your charge. What does that mean? That means that this is not my church. I've been doing this a long time. And it's not my church. And I, I would love for you never to say, you know, I'm coming to your church. You're not coming to my church. I'm coming to your church. It's our church, but it belongs to the chief shepherd, you see. That's what he's saying here. The chief shepherd is in charge of the church. It is the chief shepherd that we answer to. And it's the chief shepherd that we are looking to for direction. And so I suppose you could, you could say it this way. These elders who are to shepherd the flock, they are to do what the chief shepherd wants them to do. They are to reflect in their character and manner the character and manner of the chief shepherd. So that the church itself is very conscious of belonging to the chief shepherd. See, anything, anything that the elder or the under shepherd does to get in the way of the chief shepherd is out of line. Because the way that God organizes his church is that he is the shepherd. Of the sheep, he is a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, or he's a good peppered, as the case may be. He's a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He is a good shepherd that leads them in uh, in the green pastures and quiet waters. And anybody that co-ops that flock is actually an enemy of the shepherd. And so that's how. God wants His church to operate. I, I, I want to be conscious of this always. Uh, so, so much so that there are a couple of things that I remind myself of all the time. I remind myself of, of this. By God's grace, I am a friend of the bridegroom. I'm a friend of the bridegroom and it is my job to be a matchmaker of sorts and make sure that His bride falls in love with Him. And so I want to think of myself in that way as uh, an elder who would shepherd the flock of God. I want to make sure you are more and more falling in love with the bridegroom and the one who loves your soul more than anything. I have on my, on my desktop in my office uh, a quote that I got from Louis Palau a couple years ago. Where he was telling the story of a, a guy in Scotland who was who was going to uh, who, who was going to go evangelize in the bars, okay? And it would go. It, I'm just going to say it went exactly like he thought it would go, right? He went in there, told them about Jesus. They kick him out on the curb, and so he's outside trying to tell people about Jesus. And you know, people are leaving and they're mad at him, and nothing's working. And this guy passes by. And he notices this guy having a hard time and he just says, keep at it, laddie. God loves it 
when people speak well of His Son. And you see, that I think is the job of the under-shepherds. To speak well of the chief shepherd so that the sheep are falling in love over and over and over with the chief shepherd and not with the shepherds themselves. And so, if that is done, there will be an unfading crown of glory for the elders later. You see, this, this is what he's talking about. I mean, he's already mentioned this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, he understands that the one who loves your soul is the Savior who died on the cross for your soul. And Peter himself, and now he's recruiting the elders to point you to the one who loves your soul. And he is in the same, actually same exact words of our text today. Jesus is a shepherd and the overseer of your soul. And so there is this responsibility of church leaders to oversee and protect and keep the group that is under this fiery trial with the threat of the roaring lion altogether. And then, he says, likewise, there is also a responsibility on the part of everyone here. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And by those of you who are younger, he essentially means those of you who are not elders. Uh, some of you might be older than me, but it used to be, many of you used to be. No, it's not so much the case. But those of you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So there is a, which be subject to is more difficult than simply submit. Submit to the elders. There, there are those who are watching for your souls. Those who are, who are on high alert for the, for the uh, roaring lion. And they're doing the best, their best to keep the group hanging together. Don't you be that one that goes off there and gets talked about in National Geographic. Okay, rather submit and stay with the group under pressure. And so there is this invitation to submission that we've seen already. This is not a new theme. Part of, part of what it means to be a Christian is to be subject or submit to every authority instituted or created by God, you see. In chapter, that's in chapter 2. And then it says, those of you who are servants, submit to your, to your masters. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? Because Jesus has subjected everything under His feet. End of uh, chapter 3. So that now part of what it means to be a church is to live in submission, uh, you know, continue to live in submission even when you're in the church. So be subject or submit to elders. And then he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So this submission, of course, submission requires humility. And so it goes right from that to clothe yourselves with humility. So like you were getting dressed, which is every single day, 
Okay, You put on your shirt, you put on your shoes, you put on your humility. Make it a practice, a regular practice to clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Easier said than done here. Okay, All of us think we're special. All of us think there is this special case for us. I can be that one that's outside of the group and the lion won't get me. I can be the one who has the rules that are different and the lion won't get me. I alone can survive the fiery trial. And we all think the rules are different for us. But what he's saying is the rules aren't different for any of us. So clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Notice that he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. This is not just for the youngers. This is for the elders too. This is for everybody. Clothe yourself with humility so that the mark of the church of Jesus is humility. Wouldn't that be amazing? The mark is humility. This is one of the things that I want to encourage you to pray for. And then on the other hand, I don't want to encourage you to pray for this. I don't know if you've ever prayed for humility, but generally, very humbling things happen when you do that. So be careful what you pray for here. But the reality is, God is inviting you into a lifestyle of humility. And then here is the reason. It isn't just be humble for humble's sake, but He says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is why you ought to pray for humility. This is why the daily practice of being humble is a worthwhile practice because God resists the proud or opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, I I don't know that I'm the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I do know this. If somebody is going to oppose me, I don't want it to be God. I mean, it really doesn't, that, that really doesn't take much to realize that. And categorically, God opposes those who are proud. To be proud is to invite the opposition of the Almighty God. So, I plead with you. Don't be that person. Instead, clothe yourself with humility because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. See, this is exactly, this is exactly where we started. We started as a flock of sheep. Right? Sheep are humble. They're humiliating. They're dirty, they're smelly, they're dumb. They don't do what you ask them. And what does He say here? God gives humble people grace. You see, that's, that's I think, what it, what it means to follow Jesus. To trust in Jesus means that I don't have it in myself. I'm not enough. I need 
what somebody else must give me. Which is exactly what he's saying here. God gives grace to the humble. To the person who recognizes their need, God gives it. If it's a need for comfort, He gives comfort. If it's a need for strength, He gives strength. If it's a need for forgiveness, He forgives. If it's a need for cleansing, He cleanses. If it's a need for love, He gives love. And that is why Christ died. The righteous for the unrighteous so that He might bring you to God and God might supply all that you need. And so my plea for you, my plea as your friend, my plea as the one who has been given the charge of shepherding the flock and caring for you, please be humble, not proud. Please don't be the person that God opposes, but rather recognize your own need and receive grace from the Lord. That really is what Christianity offers that nobody else does. That God gives grace to the humble. May He give us the grace to recognize our need to be humble in our need of more grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are not afraid today of the roaring lion knowing that on the cross Jesus has defanged Him. Yet, Father, we recognize our need to be Your church, to be reminded of the Gospel, to love one another, to be a people of Your own possession. I pray that You would grant us the grace now to hang together, the grace to endure together under fiery trial, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Father, would You grant us what we need to remain humble and to be Your people in this world, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.